When you look down at our blue planet from space, it might surprise you that almost one-third of our world is desert. While not all contain the stereotypical sandy dunes and scorching heat of our imaginations, many of these barren places were once flourishing ecosystems filled with life, greenery, and natural abundance. After centuries of change, both natural and man-made, the life cycle of these places have shifted off axis to a point of no return, and these are expanding. So as humankind continues to search for complex strategies and technologies to solve our environmental problems, could there be a way to simply create the conditions required to bring life back to our deserts by letting Mother Nature heal herself? Welcome to Racing Green, the podcast that explores the ideas, innovations, and influences making waves in the journey towards a sustainable future for our planet. In each episode, we investigate the new challenges, ingenious solutions, and the undiscovered opportunities that lie at the heart of our rapidly changing world. We aim to accelerate a new era founded on optimism and impactful collective responsibility. Today, we talk with Thies van der Hoven, a pioneering Dutch ecosystem regeneration company using nature to regreen our planet and taking on the monumental challenge of regenerating Egypt's Sinai Desert. Welcome to Racing Green, Tears. Yeah, thanks. Fantastic. So you're you're the founder of a fascinating uh, company and, and, and a project which really could have some incredible impact on our our world positive impact on our, on our environment. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about Weathermakers. The main goal of our company is to initiate a regreening project in, uh, um, um, in Egypt, in the Sinai. We started the company in uh, uh, the 1st of April in 2017 after I had been working from 2016 in January. I got a request um, uh, from a colleague who was working on the Suez Canal in Egypt. What, what we could do on the, um, the disappearing fish in Lagoon by the wheel. And, and from there, a whole vision um, was created in a, in a, in a couple of weeks uh, by myself and by Malik. And um, together with some friends, we decided to really try to make this possible. And the journey started in, in the 1st of April in 2017. With support of the Dutch government and the dredging company, um, we started to be connected to... Uh, to many ecological pioneers uh, around the world. And John Liu very much supported me on that. Um, he's, a, he's a filmmaker and he actually documented uh, the change of the Lus Plateau in 25 years from a, an arid, barren place to, to a, to a re-greened re uh, habitat. And that's what we're doing. So we're mainly focusing on, on, uh, on By the Wheel, where we're um, using an industrial scale to support the local communities by regreening deserts. And with it, we figured out that um, via those people, that was also part of our vision, that if you regreen, you can change weather. And uh, the summary of weather becomes the climate. With other words, it became a way different perspective on, uh, on tackling climate change. Um, that's, what we're that's what we're trying to do in, um, with the weather makers. 
So we're kind of an holistic engineering company with parts of it in science, parts of it in very practical solutions, and part of it uh, really doing our own ecological research. And with it, we also have some, uh, some projects here in the Netherlands where we using ecological function as um, uh, the start basis for uh, tackling uh, heat stresses, floods, uh, um, sequestering of carbon, nitrogen, and, and many of the, the current problems we face. And we use the Netherlands a bit as a, as a, as a garden to learn um, the ecological value stacking uh, uh, to initiate the project in the Sinai. And um, yeah, that's a bit the weather markers. So just to summarize, I mean, obviously this is so important to you and, and to us as a human race, but, you know, the weather is, you know, changing quite dramatically as we hear and not for the good. If we continue on this trajectory, you know, what's the future for humanity? Well, I think you just laid it out. Um, that, that was also, the, that was the weird thing of my journey in those five years. It's, it's not looking, looking good. With other words, we, we hit the point where doing nothing what we currently are very good at, is, is a nightmare. It's, um, and there, are, there are many, many, I cannot, I, I cannot um, precisely explain you what will happen, but by our narrowed vision, which has been created in the last 30 to 40 years, mainly to try to continue on the path we're at, on climate change and only putting it to carbon dioxide uh, and putting it to fossil fuels and not really putting it to land use changes. We're on, a, we're on a dead end. And whether it's a war, whether it's a stop of our Gulf streams, um, uh, uh, which are so important to, to spread around our nutrients and, uh, and minerals, or, or uh, whether it's uh, floodings, I don't, can, cannot exactly explain to you. But of course, what you have been seeing in the last couple of months is that our geopolitically uh, uh, stability of our world is rapidly changing. And if you ask me, you can very clearly connect it to climate change or rapid changes in climate of which life cannot, uh, is not able to adapt to that quick. And you will start getting floods, droughts, famines, um, and the whole stuff. And people start fleeing, and fleeing causes unrest. And then you probably are where we are at the moment with mass extinction of biodiversity on a level uh, which should not make us all that comfortable. On the other hand, I am positive <laughs> um, because we know that if we want, to, we are, uh, our species is the biggest adapter of this planet and that's why it became so big. And you just feel that we are in a, in a phase and you, we don't know exactly where it will go to, but I, again, I'm positive that if you really want to fundamentally change certain things and not even that big as people tend to say now, but you need um, the system to become unstable to really change it. So um, the current trajectory is scary and um, it's the end of time, many people would say, but then of our species, of course. Uh, but uh, we also have the adaptability to change it and do that if we focus on the right thing. So your solution is re-greening on an industrial scale. Now that's, that's a challenge. How do you even begin? Uh, I'm humble to the people that have been before us that did so much work already to show and work with ecology, 
and in that sense, uh, f for me, my inspirations, and I just want to make that clear, it's, it's, it's really that we are on a practical level supporting an ecological revolution, which was already way in the air, and it would be too much honor for me to, uh, to get that. Uh, anyway, the, the Google the Lus Plateau, see what the Chinese did in the last 25 years, and um, 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 let's be humble. But what we do, I think, bring onto the table are two special things, just purely by coincidence, by people asking us the question on the wheel. And I always call it being naive and not being a scientist. We simply looked at a different way to the ecological destruction of the wheel and the Sinai Desert and uh, could simply see how you could change it, just doing your math. Because the whole lagoon, the wheel is a lagoon, 600 square kilometers, at the northern coast, so attached to the Mediterranean, filled with very fertile, salty sediments. And if you desalinate these sediments on a natural way, they are your indigenous soils that used to be the soils growing on that Sinai, and you could uh, use it to recreate it. And it holds lots of organic matter, and organic matter is a bit your basis for a vegetation cover to come back. And I was working in the dredging industry, I started my career um, um, working in Dubai on the Palm Tree Islands. I was one of the design managers of, of Palm Dera. I'm always now lucky that uh, there's a palm attached in the name or a, a tree. But, I, but you got to realize that this dredging industry can really transform huge amounts of soils rather efficient. So traveling up to the Lusbado and together with John Lee and seeing what they've done and always capturing what Jeff Loughton once said, what we need to do remains relatively simple. And let's retain moisture on land and let nature come back and build her own complexity again. So we don't need to understand complexity. You need boundary conditions for her to flourish. And having looked at that Lusbato as a dredger, I was walking around there like, hey, but this is just earth moving. <laughs> Hello, this is my industry. I should talk with my industry because if we change our behavior from a very destructive one towards a positive one. This industry can become an accelerator on a scale we have not seen before. And it was funny because that also pushed me a little bit, and I've learned that from the Chinese, to much more look back in our history to find answers for the future than trying what we normally say is create a new innovation, and then we do it. So having said that, it was were the Dutch that started to cultivate um, marine sediments, steal it from the sea to build their agricultural foods and grow as a society. So I was like, hey, wait, it was not that the dredging industry did not do this before. And it's not a, a thing I'm proud of, but, but I think now in the lists of agricultural producing lands, the, Nether the Netherlands is pretty high up into this list. So one thing, marine sediments can be very fertile if you desalinate them. So where we came up with, we can, as an industry, become humble to society and use this destructive force now as a regenerative force. And the whole coast of North Africa is stuck with marine deposits from the old ages, all in reach with those same equipments that otherwise are destroying nature to build oil fields, what a thing. And that's what we bring in on a new scale. And with that, you can then reach tipping points how you can regreen a desert. And don't get me wrong, I didn't say an industrial way of regreening because that's man's work. People have got to do it. It's love. It's, it's, 
building biodiversity is, is what um, uh, an ecosystem has to do ourselves, and we are part of it, but we can massively support it. And that's what we bring new into the game. And then, of course, from the very well beginning, we hit to that point where I tend to see that um, uh, uh, together with the whole team, but I made the first sketch, that if you regreen the Sinai, you would flip a complete weather system of that whole region. With other words, if you would regreen the Sinai, you would stop the leakage of moist air evaporated on the Mediterranean and trap her back into the mountain ranges or the encatchment basin of the Mediterranean. So you would get rain back on a much larger scale in Northern Africa. And then you could start imagining that our world now is 25% a desert. So I don't believe that much that there are too many people on this planet, but we are doing too much stupid stuff with too many people. With other words, <laughs> if we would regreen these areas, there would not be any refugees. There should not be a climate change. There should not be a food crisis. There should not be a lack of fresh water. There can be abundance in a way that you can also start understanding that you can bring equality. Because if there is more food, there's more fresh water, uh, there's more stable weather, so less destruction, you can start understanding that everything becomes cheaper instead of more expensive. With other words, you could start thinking of changing the wealth to scarcity or gold or whatever it's now connected to, but much more to ecological wealth. And that can really transform our species. We can do this quick because we've got a very destructive industry, which Europe is good at, in the offshore. The oil companies, the dredging companies, um, the mining companies. Man, if you transform them and give them a different purpose, we can do this. Using the wisdom of nature to, to do what it does best. Timeline, you talked about timeline. I said we can do this quickly. The Sinai project, you know, where are you up to now? And when would you expect that you will have achieved sort of a result that you'd be really pleased with? Well, there's a joke always within the weather makers that I always say, um, already for five years, within two weeks, we start dredging. Um, with other words, we are, we are on a long trajectory, fully now connected um, uh, to the highest rank um, in Egypt. Uh, since two years, we're fully discussing it with the president and with his whole staff. And we're really close to starting the project. But of course, due to also the, the geopolitical uh, changes in the world, Egypt is under much, uh, lots of pressure. So we're also searching now for much more international funding and political support uh, and also thinking about a peace plan instead of other things. Yeah, the things are really accelerating. And of course, at a certain moment, not to get frustrated, um, somebody learned me to use the I Ching. And the I Ching was always telling me that uh, there would be a clear sign when the project would start. Now, of course, when we heard that after a bit disappointing climate top in Glasgow, that the next top would be in Egypt, would be in Sharm el-Sheikh, in the Sinai, we knew we would get lots of wins in our sales. So I'm humbled to the process we're in, but I'm expecting it to start uh, within a year. And the dredgers are close by. We're now fully starting up the whole connection with the local people because it's sometimes a complicated country. So uh, every step has to do in, in full respect with everybody on the table. Yeah, hopefully we can start with it soon. The good thing is, the first part would be really the ecological restoration of, of Bardaville. Now, one of the things what we came up with, because we started with this estuary restoration or the lagoon restoration, 
the good thing about it is, is that this, this lagoon is stuffed with organics and with nutrient-rich sediments. So the moment you bring in the tide, which you bring in the moment you dredged the inlet, with other words, quickly, this whole nutrient loading of the lagoon changes. And directly, the existing uh, diatom communities or the primary production will kickstart. And very quickly, you can see results in aquatic ecosystems to recover compared to a terrestrial ecosystem. So um, uh, the expectation is, is that already in the first couple of years, you will see a, a big, big rise of the ecosystem growing within the lagoon. And in that sense, also, we expect to see actually rather directly, so in the first couple of years, uh, very positive effects uh, on fish growth and so fish catch and so the future perspective for the local people. So we expect it very quickly. Next to that, we will start also quickly, but we all have to do that with the local people and, and starting to, to organize it. So it really needs a proper time to socially embed the whole system uh, because they have to do it. It's their land. It's creating an opportunity for them to start restoring the wetlands. And the moment you start restoring the wetlands, you're going to see the wetlands as kind of the evaporation factories and the algae uh, that are creating the first cloud nuclei. Also, within that very first part where you start dredging the inlets and then come inside and start dredging connecting gullies, the moment you start dredging the marine sediments from inside, you can start restoring wetlands. And the moment you start restoring wetlands, you start changing the weather. It doesn't start raining in a day. Yeah, let's that make that very clear. That takes decades. But you can see changes in temperature, in moist content, in the amount of clouds at certain points during a year, etc. So the positive results, um, we will make that clearly visible well from the beginning. It does. And if you had unlimited resources, government at a high level, or, or go ahead, how long do you think? Is it sort of a two, three decade timescale? I mean, it's so far-reaching. It's, it's so ambitious. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, but it really, 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 and this is always a tricky question for me to answer, and let me try to answer that uh, subtle. On a social basis, I cannot answer that question because I'm not living there and it's not my land, and it would be completely out of my scope to say how they have to um, um, restore their land. But having said that and seeing the very miserable situation the current population lives in there. And the very big problem Egypt has with the rapidly growing population around the Nile, with other words, they need to start transferring people um, and place them in other places to take off the pressure of their current cities. And that's not something for me to decide in what time scale that would do. But say that Egypt comes together and the local people feel the need for the other Egyptians and they are, they are allowed to step-by-step step grow their population uh, because we think it could, uh, uh, the first part, easily host a couple of million re-greeners, settlers, people that restoring a water cycle and get paid for by sequestering of carbon, nitrogen, phosphor, um, water purification, flowing rivers, etc. So really add value. And not, not only the polluter pays, but also the ones that clean up gets rewarded. Eh? That's kind of concept. We can do it technically very quick. And again, by dredging marine sediments, hydraulically transferring them on separate places in the mountains. Be very careful by not polluting it with soils, but using pipelines to transfer it. 
also using potentially melted green water to bring it out there and with local people start regreening it. It's one of the most fertile places the earth has. So if you bring the right soils, the right ecologically succession, no all natural systems, nothing added on with chemicals or fertilizers, all natural, you can do it very, very rapidly. And I'm not going to say you want to do that rapidly. But what I do say, if we focus and if we really start working together, the changes of it can be seen much, much quicker than we expected. I think you can do it within 15 to 20 years. But taking all along, debating with the culture and taking everything along, I think we can do it within 20 to 40 years. It's a realistic timescale. But having said that, I really think that within five to 10 years, you will start seeing a very big change in the Mediterranean and catchment basin. Because if you look at it, that if you regreen that Sinai, you stop the vacuum cleaner that sucks the evaporated moist from the Mediterranean and pushes it into the Indian Ocean, where it creates bad weather systems. The moment you start regreening, for sure the wetlands, but everything around, you start increasing evaporation, so reducing Earth's surface temperatures, reducing your low pressure that existed by the thermal flows due to the heat stress of a desert. You start stopping moist to leak at the Mediterranean and catchment basin. And you start increasing all around that catchment basin, step by step, rain. So the effects of it, I guess, can be seen within five to ten years. Quite amazing. And as you mentioned, so many social benefits. I mean, thinking as you've described it, just the jobs that it would create in the beginning, but then the net result of having a couple of million people living in sort of lush terrain producing food and sounds like a return to those biblical days <laughs> if you mean that 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 could be what people meant with the promised land i i definitely think that that's what they've meant yeah very 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 profound when i went to the lus plateau and check out green gold documentary it's bizarre what the chinese did and they started to regreen the lus plateau which was an arid place for thousands of years because they chopped up the forest to protect themselves for the nights from the Mongols. That's why the Yellow River is called the Yellow River. They started to regreen it in 1995. And I've met Li Rei. He's one of the, 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 uh, the regreeners of China. He's within my advisory board. It's now the size of France. And it's bizarre. I traveled around there for seven days. You see forests. You see rivers. You see cascades. You're like, eh? <laughs> that used not to be there. It changed the livelihood for 60 million people. On average, wages went up with three to four times what they used to be. The evidence is out there that ecological regeneration, I tend not to call it restoration because we changed the system that much that it's more regeneration, really creates a future perspective where we should not have any unemployed people, where we should not have a very inequality way of living of our planet. And it creates a very different future where we can really work together as a species in harmony. Clearly, if you're near a source of water, you can dredge. But what about plants? What can you do with plants and the land to ensure you get that rapid greening? 
it used to be, it still is, but deviated a bit, but it used to be the biggest bird migration route highway on this planet. So what I've been doing together with some uh, uh, Egyptian scientists, we've gathered a full database of all vegetation plants living around from Turkey, all the coast down to the Nile and in the Red Sea, the southern peninsula of, of the Sinai and the northern coast. And, and we gather the whole full mapping of all the different plant species out there. It's too much to name, but it's just a full map of all existing plants out there. And there we run some tests on how many of the plants were, um, uh, were growing there uh, along a certain time span and could see whether certain time stresses or rainy or more weather periods, etc. They could tell us the first primary species that could be interesting to plant. Not only that, we would also see and look on the birds and which plants they like. Because there's your answer. It remains relatively simple what we need to do. With other words, don't ask me exactly which plants will grow there. How do you get a nature there to build back her own complexity? And the answer is rather simple. These are the birds. So by understanding the migration routes of those birds that travel from wetland to wetland, from far into Russia and Europe, all the way down to enter the eastern parts of Africa. We are just looking to attract the first types of birds with the plants that are currently already growing there and can handle some stresses and are also the ones that attract the birds. And then when the birds are coming there, man, they will just bring you the seeds from all over the planet. And that will tell us in a natural, successful way which plants will grow there. And that's why I normally not tend to call it restoration, because lots of the times people start thinking restoration really into the plants and the things that would have grown there. Well, the, the desert has been a desert for thousands of years. So the chances of it to get the same vegetation cover back that used to be is very, very small. But uh, to be able to attract again the birds that bring the seeds, that bring the nutrients, that bring the minerals from all over the place in their bird poopings, that's just the way um, uh, how nature can start building her own complexity again. Now, the other thing is if you look at the aquatic part, by increasing the tidal prism, so the volume of water that flows in and out into a tidal cycle, I already gave you the same answer. Because what we're doing, we are opening up the lagoon, step by step, of course, back into connection with the Mediterranean basin. And the Mediterranean holds so much higher biological intelligence or species or biodiversity, whatever you want to call it. And that will come in. And the life that can handle the situations there for the best will settle. And of course, we've got ideas. But um, 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 let nature come back and surprise us. Of course, you're always looking into a combination of a possibility of producing fruits or, or other things with those trees. But many of those things um, are, are known from the existing biodiversity which is there, with similar locations. Have a look onto Lebanon, where you can still go snowboarding. It's not that far away. It has cider trees. So there are many different ways how to start uh, understanding and how to connect it with her local ecosystems. And those ecosystems will start to restore herself. So to answer your questions, for me, the indigenous plant species are not always a full created list, but we tend to connect it towards the existing ecosystems around it and get it, um, uh, in that sense, try to let nature recover herself.
Now, there's one line of thought I have myself, but again, it's not up to me to do it. But you could start understanding, for example, if you discuss uh, about the, the forest, which you require higher up into the mountains, you start recycling the moisture, et cetera, et cetera. You, you know that cider trees, for example, uh, are not the quickest growers. And our trees that build up less organic material than other trees. So there, at a certain moment, you could start thinking on pioneering species um, to restore a water cycle. For example, that could be the white poplar, etc. So, of course, at a certain moment, there are ways where you can trigger the ecosystem a bit by supporting it. But um, uh, for now, we're mainly focusing on, on, on stocking, creating it towards uh, or fixing it towards existing ecosystems in the surroundings. And the birds and the fish are the most easiest ones to explain that story. A certain moment, a couple of years ago, I got, I always call it my black hole, but I got for the first time the marine sediments in quite a big volume in, uh, here in the Netherlands. So we took sediments from Bardewil and the Egyptians supported us to get it out there. So I first gave it to, uh, to many of universities and asked them, okay, man, tell me what's in there and how can we start growing? And the main answer was, oh, no, 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 geez, nothing will grow there. It's too salty and blah, blah, blah. So, right. so let us just pop in a seed. And uh, it started to grow. The funny thing is from all those researches they did on the soils, they discovered that it was a very large microbial biomass, but it was inactive. And when we started to do testings in climate rooms, what we started to do is therefore look at halophytes, eh? so the, the, um, uh, the plants that can grow into salty conditions. And what we saw that they, after a couple of weeks, were growing quicker than horticultural soils. Why? Because they reactivated again the sleeping microbial biomass. So my main focus then uh, became much more on, on microbial life in the water, but also in, in the soils. Focus there on the indigenous stuff which is out there to revitalize these sediments. Uh, so my focus is mainly more on the diatoms and on the, uh, the microbial communities in the soils that then they are specific on certain plant species. Are there examples of regreening in the world? I, I guess there are quite a lot of examples around the world, but mainly on very small scale compared to the Chinese then. There's an example of the, in the Netherlands. It's now called the New Wilderness, the Oostvaardersplassen, which actually that nature was created by a claim because they wanted to build a port there, but they, they got into a, a lawsuit and it stopped for four months. And then within those four months, the whole area came to life. And now it's, it's called our new wilderness. And it's not that small, but if you look at the, dense, uh, uh, the density of the biomass of the living orga uh, organic creatures, it's amazing. There are now many projects being started up in Brazil. You have many stories of people ecologically restoring their lands uh, in the nearby future and in, uh, much longer ago. But it was never done under so much stress uh, the climate system is currently in. So on the square meters, there are lots of examples. And there's lots of knowledge within the permaculture, et cetera, et cetera. In many cultures, eh, look at uh, the indigenous people on Hawaii. Um, uh, they tend to uh, dredge and maintain their lagoons to get fish and use those sediments um, uh, to grow foods and restore their, uh, their higher up forest, so the rivers to flow. So, so there, 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 there are many examples. To do it on an industrial scale, on, on a Planetary scale, a bit less, but let us try to create it.
Wow. An old proverb said once, never did nature say one thing and wisdom another. Sounds like by harnessing the, the wisdom of nature, you're achieving and going to achieve even more greater things. We, in this crazy world, in that sense, tend to make every little step we do very efficient. Where you get a system which is completely inefficient, where nature herself is not efficient in every little step at all, but she creates a very efficient system. And what I've learned, and, and, and I see that, that, that we became a little bit afraid to work in the unknown. I don't know exactly which natural complexity will come back, but I love it. <laughs> and I've learned from people like John Todd, Jeff Loughton, and all those really ecological pioneers, they've got a different mindset. Be happy, you get surprised. I've built this ecological lab, so this full um, uh, geodesic dome with all the aquarium parts connected to the soil parts here in the Bos. And for me, it's every day is a surprise. I walk in, oh, damn, we got another species. <laughs> wow. And, and, and it's really different that, no, 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 I'm going to introduce this species and then see how. So it's a really different way of living. Let nature surprise you and, and, and we will just get a, a hang of the force of nature. And that's for me is always funny. We think as a species that we can create productivity. Ah, bullshit. She will just completely take us by surprise. What I personally love, and I think we should have more respect for the force of nature because she is way stronger than we think. Amazing. Thanks, Tiers, for joining us here today on Racing Green. You're welcome. You're welcome. That's all for this episode of Racing Green. Thanks for joining us. Racing Green was produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, Chris Bristow, and Georgina McGiven in collaboration with the Camden Clean Air Initiative. It was recorded at Serendipity Studios in Camden, North London, with music and sound design by Chris Bristow. 